Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. We're here with Andrew Vons from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are doing a special bonus episode before Sunday's High Mountain Stage. We're just going to go through a few big picture narratives from the race so far and what we're looking forward to in the third week. Um, this The first two weeks have been exciting for like racing enthusiasts, perhaps, or people who love Italy like myself. Um, for regular race fans, maybe not so much. There's just been a lot of um, you'd probably like a bottle episode or almost anthology episodes where it's like someone wins a stage, but it's, it's been hard to weave it together into an overall narrative for the GC. So Andrew and I are just going to opine on that. And then he's going to throw me a few things that he's been thinking about as well. So Andrew, it's great to have you here. What are your, what are your thoughts on this year so far? Yeah, Spencer, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. I think my overarching thoughts are, wow, what an incredibly exciting race. My second thought is, why is Peter Sagan in Utah? My third thought, <laughs> yeah, my third thought is uh, just the dynamics of the sprinting game these days, even though we've seen DeMar now capture three wins. I don't think the numbers tell the whole story there. I just like just an incredibly chaotic, dynamic environment in sprints. Uh, certainly a very far cry from the Cipollini era when he was both pulled to the beginning of a stage one time in a chariot and many times was pulled to the line by a chariot uh, in the form of a massive lead out to just deliver him to the line. Those days are long gone and I'm just loving the chaos and the dynamism of the sprints these days. On the GC side, I'm loving Carapaz and he just really, the vibe that I'm picking up is that he is the strongest GC rider mentally in the race right now. And the only question I think is that with ongoing contract negotiations, can he stay undistracted and focused to carry through and take the overall victory? I, you know, I, I don't think that that's something that's being uh, discussed too much in a lot of the coverage that I'm seeing, but I can only imagine the pressure that he must be under as active negotiations are underway for where he's going to land in the future. What does that do to dynamics within the team and personal interests that people have uh, in relation to continuing to support Carapaz and the team and, and carry him to victory? So that's where my head's at. Spencer, what about you? What are your thoughts on the GC and what we're seeing I mean, in the sprints? You bring up a great point about these sprints. I mean, the sprinting is it's very fun these days. Um, I used to not like it. Um, you bring up Cipollini and that kind of started it. Like they had the Seiko train, they would, as you say, they would start like long, like five kilometers out and like no one would pass them the whole time. But then even Cavendish, he's such an interesting character because he's almost like a time traveler. Like there's Cavendish from the, the late aughts where it was almost like the Cipollini trains, but on steroids, maybe probably literal steroids. But God, if you remember those HDC days, there would be like three teams across the road and it would felt like every rider would pull for what felt like a kilometer. Like it was these really prolonged turns. Now, I mean, you you have like three guys with a kilometer left. It's like not enough. Like it feels like the turns are getting shorter and shorter and shorter where one guy can maybe go for 150, 200 meters. And I'm not quite sure. I, I would love to like do a deep dive on this. Like, what is going on there? Are people just bitter and more guys can now come around to train? So it's harder to just, you know, have a lead out man parked on the front doing 500 watts. Like, that's maybe that's not enough anymore. I tend to think that. I don't think the riders now, I, I don't think these guys are slower. If anything, they're probably faster. Where if you pop Cavendish's HDC train from 2009 in here, are they just getting worked over by? by the new school of trains. Um, we have, we have had teams get smaller. I think there's eight riders now versus nine. So there's just less resources to put towards sprints. Whatever has happened. It's awesome. I mean, th these sprints have been really, really fun, which a lot of times, oh man, I just, in the peak Cavendish years, I just did not look forward to the sprints and like this new Cavendish 5.0, whichever version we're in right now at 36 years old has been really fun to watch. Like, you know, his team his quick set team is depleted. He's having to just, navigate sprints by himself he's going against i mean demar i have like a soft spot for riders who don't look like bike riders and he's like a handsome statuesque man that you might see just like walking around paris like looking cool um and he kind of looks like he could play another sport professionally so it's like fun to watch cavendish kind of have to battle in his old age these like 
younger, stronger riders and like be more wily about it. So I've been, and then we saw like Alberto Dionese win on stage 11. I felt like he was going 50 miles an hour coming past those guys. And then Phil Bauhaus today was coming so fast up the inside. So it just feels like there's new characters every day. I've been loving the sprints. Can't get enough of it. I am ready for the GC battle to heat up. As you say, Carapaz is like, I always call him like a killer. I, maybe I should like change the language. I don't, maybe I don't feel totally comfortable with that anymore after the state we're in in the world. But he's just like a winner. Like he knows how to win. And like, I hate that type of term. It's like American sports terminology where you're like, he's won before. So he knows how to win again. But the guy is a nose for winning. I mean, he's so shrewd. He's really, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen this Netflix documentary about the Movistar team? I have. And his, can, his confidence, yeah. he just, he has the confidence of a champion. His level of self-belief, I believe is what distinguishes him. And I know we're going to get into this, but on Black House, at the end of that stage, when they did the Juan Pedro Lopez interview following the stage, did you catch that? I didn't see it. Well, apparently, you know, he got bumped off the road towards the top of the climb. He had some kind of interaction with Simon Yates and he then threw a bottle at him. And that was like the first thing he said in the post-race interview was an apology to Yates, which, you know, hats off, very sporting equally. I was just thinking about Carapaz in that same situation. And Lopez just seemed shattered because he had to dig so deep to come back after he did go off the road got back on the road. He'd been dropped. He had to close the gap. He just was clearly very rattled mentally. And those types of things happen in competition. And I'm sure it's distressing equally. I was imagining Carapaz in the same situation at the level of poise that he's demonstrated. I don't remember if it was on Black House or another stage where he was 700 meters from the finish. They were going all out and he had his jersey fully unzipped and he just casually sat up and zipped his jersey because he knew he wanted to be as aerodynamic as possible when they went into the sprint like 10 seconds later. And as you know, when you're going all out, that's not like a real easy thing to do. No, it's not something that would come to to my mind ever. Yeah, he just looked so chill and, and just relaxed. And then he sat up and then he drilled it, you know? So Carapaz has that level of poise, and I didn't see that from Lopez. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. He is so much poise. And what I find so interesting is going back to that blockhouse stage. If you go back and rewatch, they're going into the climb. There's a time bonus. And his te- two teammates take the first and second place time bonuses, which I don't know what the heck they were thinking. Right. Um, they try this long, like the long bomb attack. It looks like they're going to drop everyone, but they all, all those top guys are pretty equal. And then since that day, they've been very different. It's like they've let Carapat is like, you know, they're letting like the great jazz musician like do his thing where now he's like being super aggressive every stage and going for time, taking time bonuses. I think because they've realized, oh, we can't just ride these guys off our wheels. Like Carapaz is going to have to punch out this win to do it. And if you've, a funny subplot is like Ineos is falling apart. Like Jonathan Castroviejo is probably their most important domestique. He can like barely stay in the peloton. He's getting dropped on front stages. He's a really bad crash. And, it, you know, if you've ever, done a stage race and crashed you just get worse and worse and worse every day you don't there's no real recovery and then richie port i don't know what's going on there but you know he was really key to that stage nine climb up blockhouse and he's been terrible like he's been dropped like the last few days he was coming out of blockhouse still as like an outside gc threat but i don't know if sick or or just not fit or what's going on there but it's fun because now carapace is going to have to do it by himself in the mountain so i'm really looking forward to watching that and he fortunately has had that experience. I think, again, going back to the Movistar documentary where, you know, he's been in a team where everything was not operating in an ideal environment around him, or at least that was the narrative uh, in that docuseries. So this isn't unfamiliar terrain to him. And he just has that champion's mentality. He has a level of poise that you just don't see from many human beings in in many disciplines he has it he has the gift and i think that's the thing that's going to carry him forward and separate him from the pack i also wanted to jump back to stage two the time trial and i was looking back through the results and you know carapaz in a relatively short time trial lost a pretty big chunk of time for someone who's at his level 
going for the GC. But what I read in that result and what I'm now observing over time is that he came into this race definitely in form, but with the ability to peak even higher. And I think that's what we're going to see as we now advance later into the race. And of course, that uh, that's where in the past we've seen other riders who are contenders or could have, should have, would have completely fall apart. So I think we're going to see him get stronger and stronger. I have a pseudo hot take that um, my co-host Johan Bruniel, my other podcast does not agree with. And like boards of South American fans come after me on Twitter for that. Carapaz is like screwed up this spring. I think, I think in that time trial, we saw that he's like not quite. I mean, he was clearly not at his best on stage two, which is not terrible. You don't obviously don't want to be at your best on stage two. I don't think I I'm having doubts if he's able to, cause he needs to get time on Chualameda because if this race finishes in a time trial and Chualameda, I don't know if you remember last year, the guy was like flying up the mountain third week. Right. Like if that happens again, and, and the Giro is better for him than a lot of other races. Cause he just rides this really steady pace. Sure. It doesn't really work on, on shallower climbs because groups in front can draft off each other and these steep Giro climbs. It's not really a big deal. He can just kind of, ride his own pace and do his own thing. And like, I don't think we saw him anywhere close to his best in the first week. I think that was the hardest thing for him. So it's, I think he's going to win the race. I think he's going to beat Carapaz. I think Carapaz was like slightly too undercooked all spring and he's going to pay for it going into the third week. I mean, I obviously could look stupid. Like he's the bet, like he's like negative 165 in the betting in the betting market. And like the next closest person is plus 400. I think it's, it is probably on Meta. So, I mean, he's like, by far the favorite, he'll probably win. But I, I, my pick is Valameda. I think he'll end up winning. Hot take indeed. And to go in a slightly different direction, what is your take on Vanderpool's performance thus far? Oh, it's been so interesting. I, I, I never really liked Matthew Vanderpool that much for like reasons I cannot explain. Like, I think Daniel Freed from the Cycling Podcast kind of described it better than I could, where he's just kind of this like mechanical alien type figure where it's like he comes from a different discipline you're like he just kind of seemed to parachute in from cyclocross and he's like well now he's the best road cyclist but like his pedal stroke is weird everything about him is like unusual um i've really enjoyed watching him this year kind of coming back from his back injury i think that's been i've had like the most fun watching vanderpool that i've had in a long time obviously he was amazing on stage one when he won and then stage two when he now he got second in the time trial on stage two. But if you look at his power data from those days, he was blind, like career best 10 minute power. And then at, on stage eight in Napoli, where he tried like an attack with 45 kilometers to go, it didn't work and ended up getting countered and losing the race. I mean, I think we're seeing it's, it's really interesting because this is the, he's never raced the grand tour before as crazy that is because he's 27 years old and we're kind of seeing him like go through. It's like they call it in the NBA, like, rookie fatigue where you can be like great for 60 games and you start to fall apart in the second half of the season. So it's been like today a fit and healthy Vanderpool like wins today easily like that uphill sprint. And he, he got dropped. I don't even think he was there to contest it. And like tomorrow would be a really good day for him too, if he was rested and fit. And I don't think he's even going to figure in that stage. So it's, it's been really interesting to watch him going from like as electric as he was in the first two stages kind of fatiguing and like learning what the rest of the pro cyclists have had to deal with with these pesky grand tours and like i wouldn't also wouldn't be shocked if it changes his body a little bit like i thought peter sagan got less explosive the more grand tours that he did where you never quite regain that extreme extreme explosion but you become a stronger more consistent rider because of that yeah Vanderpool has what in the combat sports they call gameness, like his willingness to fight and to do things that are seemingly very inadvisable were it not for the enormity of his talent is high. And the thing that I'm curious about is what could he achieve if he, I, I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but what could he achieve if he rode truly strategically and going back to the stage uh, where he was ultimately out sprinted by Benny and um, you know, if you rewind like five minutes, 10 minutes before he lost the sprint, conceded the sprint, ran out of gas, he had that downhill attack. And when I, I saw that, I mean, 
watching on TV, I'm sure it's very different than what's actually happening inside of the race. Cause he wasn't the only person who tried to break away on the downhill when it seemed incredibly inadvisable, but he put out this huge effort. He didn't get a gap on the group at all. And then shortly thereafter, he ended up in, a, in that sprint and almost had it and then blew up very close to the line. I just kept, there've been many instances like that throughout the, the race where I've just wondered what could have been, had he held back a bit more in other instances, even though it was spectacular, it just didn't get the outcome that he probably wanted. You think that, yeah, like the thousand Watts for a minute attack before it had anything to do with his being tired. And I don't know. Um, no, no, I, I, I thought the same thing and he did flat earlier in that stage and he closed, it was like a two minute gap to the Peloton and he closed it so fast, unbelievably fast. So, he was burning a lot of matches that um, Inium wasn't. I, I, though, it's like, I took that attack on second thought to be like, oh, he knew he couldn't beat him in the sprint. Like, he knew Binium's faster than him. Because if you go back and watch the bunch sprints, he's just getting smoked by Binium, except for stage one, which is like a little bit more advantageous to Vanderpool because it's slightly uphill. But even then, if you go back and watch that stage, he wins it and he's not excited. He's like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I had to work that hard to beat a 22 year old rookie. Like, this isn't good. And that you could, like, see him. I thought the attack was almost him conceding. Like, I can't beat this guy in a sprint. But I think we're in for, like, years of, like, great battles between these guys. Yeah, Germay is, uh, it seems like he's a generational talent. Like, yet another one coming up at a young age, stepping right into the top step. And there were so many moments in the race already where, you just have to wonder what if same thing with Caleb Ewan's crash early in the race. Like we talked about this briefly, but the price that you pay for a wreck that severe, that early in a stage race, it's just impossible for your body to recover and to really get into anything approaching top form in a scenario where you have to be a hundred percent all the time. So I think, uh, one of the observations that I had in that Jermaine, Vanderpool duel. The sense I always get with Vanderpool, even when he's winning a race, I feel like he's trying to make it extra hard because he's training for something else. I don't know why he's like, there's almost like a Froome like quality to how he's interacting with the technology on his bike. I don't know if you've noticed this, Spencer. Have you ever observed this where he's really has this fixation at times on? his computer and whatever's going on. Yeah. His computer. I don't quite, I don't know if it's like, like with Froome, I, I actually started to wonder if it's like the angle that his neck is comfortable at. It's like the same thing with Vanderpool. It's like, I wonder if like that's where they're comfortable, but it does look like they're just fixated. There's something, there's like a message on their computer that they're always trying to read. Yeah. And he's throwing in these uh, incredible efforts that are spectacular to watch, but equally, I always just get this sense that he's thinking about something that's 10 days or two months from now. He's like, you know, even that downhill attack, maybe it was like, there's something coming up in a future race. I need to put in this thousand watt attack at the end of the stage and then sprint because therefore I will be ready to do this thing that I'm trying to do in the future. Or maybe it's just not writing strategically. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's a good. And if you watch, like I've been going back, um, like if stages get boring, I, I watch the beginning of the stage and it's super interesting to see where the breakaways go. And it's been unbelievably hard to get in these breakaways. And like, not only is he getting into them, he's often the first guy to attack. He just rides solo. This is always like, if you're an aspiring racer, it's like, you can't miss the move. If you are the move, that was like always my rule of thumb. It's a re you waste a lot of energy though. Just go solo. The move will catch up with you. And like, he's doing like at the Napoli stage, he was just by himself for like 15 minutes. And then the breakaway finally formed around him. And a lot of time he's just driving the break. And it's like, yeah, it's like, what are you doing? Are you training for something? Like, what is going on here? You don't, you have a team. They can drive it for you. And you saw that on stage, I think that was stage 12 that his teammate won, Stefano Oldani. He was just driving that move like all day. And then he tried to bridge up to the lead three. And it's like, I think in his mind, yeah, he's going to drive the break, bridge up, win the stage. I think, yeah, is this, are you just trying to be awesome at like the Tour de France 2024? Is that the idea? He is doing that. We should mention he's doing the tour later this year. I think, I think he's going to, I have to imagine he's doing that. Um, and he missed a lot of training this spring. So perhaps he is 
having an eye on that. Like I want to be really, really fit for the tour. Or perhaps he's LARPing as a drone hopper team member. Yeah, but, but good. Right. Because <laughs> like I mean, a good, I think a good version. Yeah. As you said, it's been incredibly hard to get into the break that sticks. The only thing that, that seems to be the common denominator to be in one of those breaks is to be in the illustrious drone hopper Jersey. And I know much has been written about the drone hopper Jersey. There's been a lot of commentary. I think it's interesting that almost this anti-style of this vomit of words on a Jersey actually really stands out in this highly elevated fashionable era of cycling kit. It definitely does. I mean, it's very ugly and I don't know, like Bardiani, I think sl- slips by because drone hopper takes so much attention. But it's it looks like they've not updated their jerseys since like literally 1994. But it's starting to work again. Especially, I find a lot of the jerseys very ugly. I think EF work. I like EFs. And like Ineos, who's pretty good. I, I, yeah, a lot of these stylized kits do not. I just don't find them, especially in motion. Maybe on static on a page, they look okay. I've not found the kits to be that attractive this season. And then. Yeah, you see these goofy, like overly stylized Italian kits, and it's like, I'm in, I'm game. Give me more drone hop. There's something palliative about the drone hopper riders just being up there for these protracted periods of time in the breaks. It almost reminds me of uh, like stormtroopers in the background in a Star Wars scene. Just like there's always like a drone hopper rider up there for a few hours every day. But uh, uh, do you know the backstory behind this? No, let's hear it. <laughs> That's it's similar to what you just said. They the deal is RCS invites them to the race, but they have to be in not every breakaway because some of them like today is too hard, but every breakaway that they can make it into, they have to make it into or they won't get invited to the next year's Euro. So like they're there is just like literal cannon fodder. Like RCS is just sending them out there because we saw this breakdown. I think it was staged three one drone hopper guy went but he rode really slow no it was an iolo or whatever that that's the spanish burger, italian, the burger king italian, the burger king team burger king love their bikes by the way i might buy one the breakaways are working on me. but they only one guy went and he didn't ride fast enough and the stage took like seven hours so it's like it screws up the schedule so that's why rcs wants drone hopper up there because it like speeds the race up and like everyone acts a certain way because the breakaway is there it's almost like plants in an audience or something they're not really participating in the race they're there just to like facilitate the race along it's a really odd subplot in in like a time cycle you just you just don't see that much of it anymore in other races i mean another thing that really jumped out at me spencer and i'm curious what your thoughts are on this but I have noticed that there seemed to be a lack of super narrow bars in the Giro this year. And I also feel like we were seeing a lower incidence of mass casualty wrecks. There might be no mask. I was thinking about that today. I don't think there's been a few riders go down. Like Lopez fell off because he went off the road. He had to touch the wheels. But other than that, not been very many crashes. I'd say no mass crashes. Yeah. And I, I haven't noticed those bars as much that. And if you don't know what Andrew's talking about, they're like really narrow bars, like absurdly narrow. And like people claim they're not dangerous, but it's just like physics. The the closer your bars get together, like the closer your hands are, the less leverage you have to steer. And we are seeing like early in the year, you saw those bars all the time and you did see a ton of crash. I would say there's something, your theory has weight to it. There's definitely something there. Uh, Spencer, I also dug into an exchange that we had off air about bike throws and tall people. And we were kind of having this back and forth about your observation that there are a lot of taller riders who don't seem to be as proficient at the bike throw. <clears throat> so I, I dug into the research. I was curious about what kind of relationship there is between height and reaction time. And there seems to be a fair fair amount of research that because the electrical signal has to travel farther and taller people's limbs that they in general have lower reaction times. I do think that there are a lot of confounding variables in cycling at the end of an incredibly long stage when a bike throw happens related to timing, fatigue, neural fatigue, physical fatigue. But 
I am curious if that potentially does have that impact that we see sometimes when we see a smaller, more compact rider like you in or Cav going head to head with someone who's taller on the line. Definitely felt like uh, I, I rewatched this after you, you brought this up. Um, so he got beat by DeMar, right? With that bike throw who's significantly taller. Right. It did look like Ewan, who's normally very good at bike throws, just like got it off late. So, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe if he's taller, he just has the reach to get that out there. But you're like, it just feels like a lot of bike throws. It's like, I guess a lot of sports things are like this, but just like timing is everything. Like if you can, you know, you can be six feet tall in the NBA, but if you just have good timing, you can get a shot off on almost anyone, even though the your reach is just not anywhere near a tall person's. So there probably is like, you just have to, if you're shorter, if you're like doing, I mean, his arms has, must be some of the shortest arms in the peloton that you just have to be really like, you can't have mistakes like he had. I, you mentioned something. I, I never found this, that Botters, Jonathan Botters was like espousing beliefs about Remco Evanapol's shoulder to hip ratio on Twitter. I wasn't on Twitter. It was on it was on another cycling podcast. He was being interviewed, and yeah, he was talking about Remco's proficiency in time trialing and his low frontal area having a lot to do with the ratio of his shoulder whip to his hip hip width. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if Botters always seems to have very deep things about sports science, and then when I'm just pulling up the rankings right now, his EF team. It would if we were in the ICU, they would be called. Like they're dead. They're done. They're so bad this year. I'm just I think they're they are they are better than another world tour team. And there's people that work on that team that I really like. So <laughs> I don't want to be too mean. But they are not having a good season. So it's funny that he's I mean Astana's almost catching them and Astana's A not getting paid. They're all riding for free this year. And they're like folding everyone knows they're just folding at the end of the year so if they get beat by astana that's really bad um he he did though say something about remco during COVID that i thought was interesting that he's not good on like whiffed or indoor riding like his power is not great and that you could just be seeing a mismatch between like how arrow he is because of i guess because his he's just a lot of different factors but one of them being his hips the shoulder ratio and that he just doesn't have to put out as much power because he's like physically gifted. It's like, could you ever actually apply that? Like, are you going to go out and recruit riders with advantageous hip to shoulder ratios? Probably not. At the end of the day, it's like Carapaz. Carapaz actually, it's funny if you think about him, he's not, he's very talented. Like he's obviously talented than almost anyone else in the world. He's not particularly, his, his like bio stats are not that good. Like, He's not really elite at any one thing. He's just like good at racing his bike. And like, that's probably more important than like anything else at the end of the day, which is, it's just so cool. It's like, as we get more advanced in sports and sports science gets whittled. And it does feel to me though. I feel like is sports science getting better? Hot take. Are we sure sports science is good? Like, I feel like we're just having the same conversations every few years. Um, for example, you was bike weight was a thing, right? That was like a, that's all anyone talked about for felt like years or am I, I I'm remembering that correctly. Right. Yes. Weight weenies like Hannondale had like a sub legal bike. This was important. This is all anyone cared about. Disc brakes come along. Weight's not important. It's only about arrow. There's guys riding those disc brakes. Bikes are not lighter than the minimum. So like they're, they're riding extra weight up the climb. So the bikes have gotten heavier, significantly heavier in the past five years. And you're like, well, what happened to weight? Does weight not matter anymore? Like, that's why Pogacar chooses to ride rim brakes a lot because it's just a lighter machine. So, uh, yeah, I guess we are getting better with sports science, but it just feels like, like that, like, did someone take their eye off the weight ball? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, I don't know what's going on with the weight thing. I have the same question. And, I'm also wondering what's going to happen with bike development because surely there are further advancements that can happen to bring the bikes with disc brakes and aero technology down in weight. Uh, but I mean, there are certain limiting factors like the, the fluid and the casing, uh, 
in the lines for hydraulic brakes. Like you can't remove that from the bike, right? Like they're yeah. just, they're just naturally heavier. Now that we've moved to electronic shifting systems, marginally heavier component manufacturers no longer want to sell mechanical systems. And they've now used marketing to convince consumers that their mechanical is an inferior product. And a lot of people don't want to mess with what you need to do to maintain mechanical systems. Plus the aero integrated systems now that are used in bikes with hidden cables make it pretty much impossible to run mechanical systems. So we're now locked into a, a different style of bike. They weigh a bit more than perhaps even professional riders would like, but Spencer looping back to the Remco Vauders, uh hip to waist ratio. I would say if there's anybody out there listening who has data on this or knows more about this, cause I've dug around, I can't seem to find anything about it online or any information from aerodynamicist um, people uh, holler at me at Hardway pod on Twitter or Instagram, or you can hit up Spencer, but like, we want to know what is the optimal shoulder to hip width ratio that makes someone maximally fast with the lowest, um, coefficient of friction for aerodynamic purposes. I'm really curious, like who has this data and you're right, Spencer, like, is this a measurement that they're taking it? It, uh, development camps now to see if riders have this potential or are they putting them in the wind tunnel? Are they using data capture devices to, would, to look into this? I would guess it's something that happened to grab in the wind tunnel. That it, I cannot imagine this is like, uh, it, maybe this isn't even a real thing. Sometimes Vodder says stuff that I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm asking. That's why I made the truth is out there and you're right. There is, there is something of an Yvonne Drago and Rocky three aspect of a uh, Vanderpool and Remco has it as well. I mean, very vastly different personalities, but both just, wow, is like there's explosive styles, just incredible. And there's something about both of those athletes as well. While they have, they have very different body types. They, they just sit on the bike and seem to be proportioned differently than most professional cyclists that you look at Remco in particular, I don't know what it is, but you know, he's flat backed like all of, like a hundred percent of the time, no matter what he's doing when he's riding, it's almost like he's time trialing all the time, which is freakish, but there's also something just about the proportion of proportions of his torso and limbs that just gives him a very different visual appearance than other riders. It's very unique. I have two things to say about this. It's, probably going back to the bike throw it's like the unsatisfactory answer is just like being gifted with flexibility and like you know peter sagan is great at bike throws because he's just an athletic person who can shove his saddle basically up to his mouth when he does a bike throw and it's the same thing with being arrow on the bike like we can all be more arrow like you really want to be fast and can go out and you can really work on being arrow in your road position and being disciplined where your hands are the end of the day it's like there's just so few people who can tuck in we can all tuck right how many of us can actually put out power or breathe in that position a lot of it's just like genetics like bobby and cancellar like really special people who can hold a time trial position on a road bike there's not very many of them because you just can't really produce power in that position but like remco can vanderpool can i often think he looks very unarrow because he's so broad-shouldered but He's good when he wants the time trial. He's very good at it. So he must be quite arrow. And then the other thing is like, I, I've noticed it was with European riders like Dries de Bont, uh, who's on Vanderpool's team was off the front. And I was thinking like, he just looks same thing with Vanderpool. Like they just look like athletes, like really good athletes. And you don't see that from American riders because my theory is if you're a, an American, who's a really good athlete, you're not riding bikes you're doing something else you're playing soccer or basketball and or football and that like in europe you get this like it's a different breed of cyclist who just like all the alpes and phoenix guys they just look like athletic dudes on the bikes and they're all like chiseled and even the way they just sit on it you can tell that they're it's really different than how an american sits on a bike it's just like an agility there and an athleticism that you don't see from like a stereotypical cyclist so probably a lot of it just comes down to being like good athlete and like being flexible and being able to move your body around. 
Yeah. And maybe we'll find out that they're, while he appears to be broad shouldered, perhaps Vanderpool has a golden ratio of, of shoulder to waist. We'll find out. The truth yeah, is out I, there. There is this guy. I actually would love to have him on the, we should get him on. Um, his name is Dan Bingham. He's a really smart guy. He's an aero, he's like his title is aerodynamist and he used to work for Yumbo. And you'll notice their setups are really different than they were three or four years ago. And Ineos is a lot more aero now than they used to be. And he has like all types of theories of it's not aerodynamics is not what you think it is. Um, it's like, I like it used to be, do you remember when everyone's time trial position was like, there was no stack stack was like not allowed. And now people are so high. It looks like they'd be on aero in those positions, but right. What you think looks arrow is different than what is arrow. So I'd love to get his, uh, his thoughts on the, like what makes, how is Matthew Vanderpool aerodynamic? Cause he looks so he's like a statue. It's like a Greek statue that you put on a bike and somehow he's fast. A Greek statue that's uh, looking at his computer. Yeah. Just, just obsessed. <laughs> What's on there. We don't know. It's just, is like, we don't his, know his, his contract just loves to look at like the bank account just going up every day. Can't, he can't believe how much money to make. Maybe it says looking strong. <laughs> so who do you, so is Carapaz your favorite to win this race? Carapaz. Yes. Carapaz will win. What about you? I, I like Almeida. I'm sticking with Almeida. Almost a more, this is who's the, so let's, who's your podium then? The, the third podium place, especially with Bardagon today, I find to be incredibly intriguing. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, honestly, I haven't, I haven't thought that far. I'm, I'm a winner. I'm fixated on winning. I haven't I'm thought about second and third. Yeah. What about you? Um, I mean, so like I'm looking at Mika Lynn. I've never seen, I have not seen him uh, look this good in years. The guy is allergic to like winning. And yeah, results. yeah. He looks incredible, though. I could see him finishing on the podium. Guillaume Martin, same thing. Very consistent. Oftentimes finishes ninth, tenth, eighth in the Tour de France. It seems impossible for him to podium. It's right there for him. Jai Hindley, I guess he's been second here before, but I almost—that's uh, like a Mickey Mouse hero, in my opinion. I don't think it was even twenty-one stages. It was like—I don't know if you remember the weird COVID year where the races were all in like odd slots um third here would be really legit i don't totally buy him i mean i would love to see domenico posa would be my that would be 39 years the guy's 39 years old he was unemployed until like mid-february and i bet i heard a theory that he, not a theory just like a figure that he's making per year what carapaz makes per and he could ride into a podium place at this year that would be crazy I'd love to see that. I also think a, a real sleeper subplot here, just looking at GC today, and we'll see where things shake out. But wow, Valverde and Nibley both in the top 15. Oh, yeah. That should, people should, I, I've, some people I talk to are like, oh, I can't believe they're riding for GC. They should be going for stages. Like, Valverde is not very far back. He's less than 90 seconds off the lead. And the, the big thing for both of those guys is, I don't know, what happened in Nibali and on Etna? It's like a tragedy how much time he lost. But they both looked so good on Blockhouse, which is a legit climb. Like that's where it would show if you hadn't done your homework. And they were both really good. People should be, if you're sitting up there high in the GC, you should be worried about that, especially Nibali because he's so far down. 304. If he gets in a move, is Ineos really, what, what do they do? Are they going to pull back a breakaway because Vincenzo Nibali's in it in the mountains? Maybe not. And then things can get really crazy really fast. They have a fighter's chance. I mean, I thought the same thing on Blackhouse. I was just like, are my eyes deceiving me? Is this I real? I believe that. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's insane. It's it, uh, where they are at in their careers and their achievements are ridiculous, but it just, wow. To do that at that age is unbelievable. And Balka Melema sitting 17th place. 17th place, six and a half minutes back. If he wins, I I win something like $150,000. So <laughs> I am just hoping that that happens. <laughs> no one will ever see me again. I'll be in Aruba for the rest of my days. Living off 150K. Um, 
No, I, I tend to agree that Vander or Valverde and, and Nibali, I mean, Valverde is shockingly close. I, I don't think, I haven't heard much about it. People seem to just be kind of overlooking it, but that's, that's something to pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is pretty much a done deal, but I think another big question mark here is what is the future for Simon Yates? He, that's a great question. What do you think? So, so this is our last question probably. My son wakes up in like 10 minutes and I got to go, but I've, I've spent way too much thinking about this. So I, alarm bells were ringing for for me about Simon when he got dropped at Volta Asturias a week before the Giro. And he said, oh, it's the heat. I'm just not good in the heat. I was thinking, well, the Giro d'Italia. And so there's two summits finishes in Southern Italy. Like that could be a problem. And then of course he gets dropped on Blockhouse. They said it's, oh, the knee. He hit his knee in a crash, which is true on stage four. But then he also like threw in like, and I don't do well in the heat. I'm like, well, is that true? Because he won the Volta Spanish in 2018. So like, could he really not do well in the heat? It just, I get worried when I start hearing stuff like that. It's like super talented riders tend to do this. Like we saw Wilco Kelderman blaming his, his disc brakes for blowing his wheel up, which isn't true. It's like when I start hearing the excuse train come out, I'm like, I don't love the mental space that they're in. He's, he's won a grand tour. Unlike his brother, who's never podiumed at a grand tour. I think people tend to think Adam is better than Simon, but Simon did win the Vuelta. I don't think he can, after this, even though he has a slightly valid excuse with the knee, I don't think he can go for, and I heard him say he doesn't think he'll go for DC in a grand tour. He's so good. You know, he's so inconsistently good that it would make sense for him. He should just go to the Tour de France every year and win Mountain State. Like, that's not a terrible career. He probably is on an amount of money. I bet he's getting paid. 2.5 2.5 million euros a year at bike exchange and you only pay riders that who are DC riders you wouldn't pay a stage hunter that so that's probably goes into the calculation um I mean I honestly think he should go Levi Lifetimer he should just try to win week-long stage races and win win stages at Grand Tours yeah and then beyond that it's probably in the latter stages of his career uh, playing more of a support road captain kind of role like he, i just i'm picking up like real richie port vibes from him at this point like i feel like that's the yeah. direction simon yates is headed i do feel like people forget how good port was i mean simon yates is pretty good too but yeah he needs to he needs to find his richie port groove like when richie got third at the 2020 um, tour de france like that that's i think the pinnacle of simon yates's career i think though that's the media, which is like if you are an English consumer or speaker of cycling media, like it's very British focused. And I don't think neither he nor like the British establishment have come to terms with that. I, th- I think he's like 30 years old, which is funny, but it's still like it's coming. He's it, he's going to be great. It's almost like what we went through with TJ Van Garderen, where it was hard for us to reconcile. How could someone so promising, so young, just flame out the way that he has? And I mean, not that he's not had success like. Uh, I've never won a Grand Tour. Like, that's pretty cool. But, like, right-sizing the expectations still needs to happen, perhaps. Yeah, and one other factor with Yates is what's happening with the valuation of their title sponsor team, you know, Bike Exchange. There's been a massive drop in the company's valuation uh, with what's happened in the stock market in the past couple of weeks. And... You know, these riders all have their heads in the game, but it's, I, I keep thinking the same thing, whether it's Carapaz, Cavendish thinking about where he's going to be in 2023, Yates thinking about both his trajectory within this race and the overall stability of the team. Just like a lot of things happen in cycling. These are not, uh, you know, it's a different kind of professional sport with a different financial model. And that just has to create a lot of stress for these writers is just a guess that I have. Yeah. Do you know the story behind, there's a bit of backstory related to what you're talking about where, um, that team is owned by Jerry Ryan. Who's like one of the richest people in Australia, but now he's not like, I, they have Atlassian now, but they just don't have like the type of, they don't have like Jeff Bezos, massive, massive wealth. So he has like restraints right. on his spending. 
Yeah. And he just loves cycling. He just funds that team. And like, he also owns bike exchange and then uses, or he owned Jayco. Like every sponsor of that team has just been a portfolio company of his. And he just slaps the name on for like free publicity for one of his own companies. Um, so like bike, if bike exchange went out of business tomorrow, the company, the team would probably be fine because Jerry would just keep paying for the team. Something happened. I'm not quite sure what exactly went on, but in 2020, he decided he he didn't want to do that anymore. And um, this guy, Shane, Shane Bannon, who very nice guy. I, I like the guy a lot. Um, I, I don't know the full story here, but like he went and sold the team to a Spanish businessman. Did you, did you follow this at the time? No. He just like sold the team. So it's like everything the team had, like the cars, the service course, the license was never run by Jerry Ryan. I'm not quite, I don't think Shane is a crook. So I think it was, I'm going with miscommunication. If he wants to come on the podcast, I would love to hear the backstory on this. So the team was just like sold to like a, almost what appeared to be like a organized crime figure in Spain. Like the guy was like, had a construction business. Like there's no way his business could have supported this team. Um, rider stuff getting paid. It was like a bad time in the team. And it was like during the COVID craziness. So this kind of got lost in the shuffle. Um, Jerry Ryan realizes what's happening, gets the team back, buys it back, basically says like, well, I didn't approve that. So that's not a valid contract. It's my team again. And now I'm like, it's like a relationship that's, they've broken up and now they're back together. He's like, I'm recommitted to the team. I'm going to put money into it. Um, but since that turmoil, they've they've been a, you, you look at like the charts of their performance. It's not it's been dropped off when that happened, and it's never been the same again. Especially, I think they suspended pay. A lot of people went to half pay, and they're still on that half pay. And you can tell. I mean, they're not motivated. It's not a happy team. Like if you remember the good vibes of the Orca Green Ed era, those are gone. So you're you, you're de- deduced correctly that like. They're all feeling the, the financial stretch, the stresses that are happening behind the scenes. Yeah, everything's great as long as Oleg Tinkov continues to pay, pay the bill, um, and then then Oleg is gone and things change. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how good I've that. That seemed still kind of like a crazy situation when he's like, I don't know why I'm paying these guys anything. They suck at riding the bikes. That would wrap probably rattle me a little bit as a rider. Yeah, right, I think probably, I think so. I mean, that's what I'm saying. When you have this Medici Patron model for the sport, like you're kind of your future financially as an athlete, any stability that you have is in service of and at the whim of whoever is paying for everything. And if they change their mind, or if the situation changes, or things change hands, which they often do in professional cycling then who knows where you're going to be next season with what support on what bike. And I think that's why Adam, his twin brother went to Neos and Neos is the European say it because he wanted the financial stability. Cause they are like, I don't, they didn't break up cause it's like, there's not enough room in town for two It's Like the first thing we need to do with Simon is he got to be back with his brother. They got to be on the same team. Like, I think they're like best friends that I heard they talk every day. So it's like, I think I think it would help his performance if he was back as teammates with his brother. And I think I bet his brother. I've heard a rumor that he's coming back to Bike Exchange next year. It's unclear to me who's so who's yeah. If Carapaz is leaving Ineos, and Adam Yates, who's I guess they're just all in for Carlos Rodriguez at that point. I don't. We, we might have to come in after the tour and like do like a contract negotiation gossip podcast because that's also interesting to me like what's what's happening to Ineos at the end of this year and it makes sense this is the time of year when these things happen in professional cycling equally I, I think it creates maximal psychological instability for the writers it just has to be incredibly challenging to go back to their hotel room and you know be thinking about this and chewing on it in addition to whatever is happening in the race which is all consuming, but going back to where mental strength is really the number one quality a rider has to have to be at the very highest, most elite level of any sport and in cycling as well. That's what Carapaz has and displays in spades. So I, I think that's why he has the advantage. Yeah. I mean, these guys are doing contract negotiations, like on the rest date of grand tour, which is, that's not how I would design 
you know, even like think of cortisol levels, like how much you're, you're stressed, you're like, no, I want this much money. And your team's like, no, you suck. We want to pay you this much. And we want you to go, by the way, yay, please ride well tomorrow. Like it's just an unusual situation. And it's like, you see people like perennial snake bitten riders like Landa or like, I love Bardet, but Bardet does not win stage races often, if ever. And it's like, yeah, you're just wondering is that, are they just crumbling as the pressures build consistently? And then the same people tend to win races often, probably because of their mental stability and like their mental strength, not even strength, the bad, their, their fortitude, their ability to like, they're going through inhumane experiences and like very few people could just like brush that off and continue to perform. And like, that's what makes it so special. Especially while you're living out of a rolly bag and sleeping in a double bed with a roommate in a small hotel crazy. room in a yeah. chain hotel, right? Like we're talking like Holiday Inn-ish level, shout out Holiday Inn. I've enjoyed staying in a lot of them, but I'm not sure I'd want to stay in one in the middle of a uh, athletic contest such as the Giro. Yeah. I mean, I think when they get to the mountains, it's like you can kind of get like the rustic some are very nice hotels and some are like rustic chalets, but think about like flat, think of all those flat stages at the Tour de France. Like what are those towns like? <laughs> How nice are those hotels? I don't know if I'd willingly want to stay with them. And they're in there with roommates. I mean, that's not, not, it. but thanks for coming on Andrew. I am excited. I almost called you Adam Yates. <laughs> thanks for coming on. And <laughs> I'm excited to watch this final week go. And well, I think there's like a lull stage next week that we should try to get together and then talk about what's happened and what's going to happen in like the final three stages. They're pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on, Spencer. All right, bye. Bye.